my dad's lesson from so many years ago in that orchard telling me to take a look at other people's lives, to understand that they have struggles within their own day to day and that, you know, approach every day with humility, approach every new person with humility, but also empathize with them. And then just understanding that my dad on the surface is this person who he's an Iranian immigrant, he's a business owner and Almost nobody outside of his family knew all these other things about him and these other struggles that he had been through, I think was such an influence on me always thinking about other people and the whole capacity of their lives. Shada Omidvar's dad, Amir, is an Iranian immigrant. His story is captivating, raw, and full of very emotional moments that have recently been shared on a podcast with Frequency Podcast Network called The Hopeful. Welcome to The Safe Haven, a space for stories to be shared about the lights and darks, highs and lows of life. In total transparency, I didn't listen to The Hopeful before my conversation with Shada. I wanted to be able to speak with her entirely about her own perspectives on her dad's story and what being the daughter of an immigrant and immigrant parents has been like without knowing anything about Amir's story in advance. I wanted my reactions to be as authentic as possible. After we recorded, I downloaded the five episodes that had released up to that point and then sat in on the watch party finale last Monday. To say I'm blown away by the work that went into this podcast is a massive understatement. I could hardly find the words to describe how quickly I fell into the story and the vulnerable recount of Amir's life. Shada and her best friend Portia worked incredibly hard to put this piece together. You'll hear about some of the massive efforts in today's conversation, but Amir's voice and sharing his own personal stories in The Hopeful make that podcast series incredibly moving. On today's episode of The Safe Haven, Shada joins us and shares perspectives of her story within her dad's story. We talk about Shada's life growing up as the daughter of immigrant parents, navigating her own identity, and her own personal struggles and successes. We talk about the pressures faced while growing up, prioritizing mental well-being, and intergenerational trauma. Shada starts us off with a very brief timeline of her dad's story, and I mean very Cole's notes, very brief, but I think that it's a really great way to give us some context about the caliber of the story she has worked so hard to share on The Hopeful. Let's jump in. Um, so just like a quick recapper and like one liner on what, how, what my dad's story is. Um, he's an Iranian immigrant. Um, he moved to Canada just over 35 years ago, left Iran amidst the Iran Iraq war in the 1980s. And that was a time when Iran had closed its borders. So no one was allowed to leave or come in unless they had some very specific visa documents or paperwork which my dad did not have. Um, he came from a lower, like lower income family. So grew up quite poor. And he left, he always had this dream of moving to the US to create a better life for himself to for new opportunities. And um, actually following the breakup of his from his first girlfriend, um, he f- was so heartbroken, he just had to leave the country. Uh, and escaped the borders, walked across um, from Iran into Turkey, and then his two-year journey moving across the Atlantic Ocean commenced, uh, primarily taking place in Spain. He was a refugee in Spain, mostly in Barcelona, and made four attempts into the U.S., 
One attempt was, his first attempt was through Mexico. He flew to Mexico City, took a two-day bus ride to the Tijuana border, got caught there before he even made it to the border, was imprisoned uh, for two weeks, and then deported back to Spain again. He had the choice to be deported back to Spain or to Iran. He chose Spain. Another time he went to try and join a friend who was in Rome. He flew to Milan and he did have paperwork, but for whatever reason, the Milan border officers didn't accept his paperwork. They actually then beat him and put him on the exact same plane that he flew into the city with. Mm. So he was only really in Milan, maybe a few hours, sent back to Spain again. He then met a Canadian family um, while he was in Barcelona. And at the time, like Canada had come up as an option instead of the U.S., primarily as a gateway again into the U.S. since they share a border. He went to London Heathrow, was denied entry that moment as well, sent back to Spain for a third time. And the fourth and final attempt my dad made out of Spain again was through London Heathrow with a fake Italian passport that had been doctored with a felt pen. And by some crazy chance, the border officer just either didn't care, didn't notice, and he landed in Canada. But when he landed, the border officers had greeted him so warmly and for the first time with care that he decided that his journey would just end in Canada. And then that would be where he called his home and he wouldn't be trying to make it to the U.S. any further. And um, he's been in Canada ever since. And, uh, you know, like the life of a refugee in a new country comes with its own trials and tribulations. And it took him, you know, quite a few years to settle in Canada and build a life. But he has since, you know, in in that time, he met my mother, had two children, opened up his own business, um, started flipping homes, retired by the age of 55, and now is able to split his time between Turkey, Mexico, and um, Kelowna. <laughs> my gosh, that is incredible. Yeah. I want to mm-hmm. back up. How old was he when he was first trying to leave Iran? He was 21. 21 years old. And then amongst a two-year journey and back and forth, how old was he when he finally landed in Canada? So <laughs> this has been the interesting part of putting this story together is, you know, memory is kind of a funny thing, mm-hmm. especially memory along with um, me- memory that has been challenged with trauma. Mm-hmm. So m- my dad doesn't remember in the most linear way um, a lot of these things. So it's guessed that by the time he got here, he was like 25 or 26. Okay. What was his work that he was doing in the meantime? I mean, he bounced around so much between Iran, Turkey, the U.S., Mexico, (laughs) Spain. Yeah, so my dad was a high school dropout primarily for survival reasons. His father died when he was 14 years old, Mm -hmm. and he's one of seven children. Uh, But he's trained – he's a trained mechanic. Mm -hmm. He was since he was a teenager. That was the work he was doing in Iran, and when he – When he was in Spain, though, he was working in a kitchen. So he was a dishwasher first and then was promoted to chef. So he worked for 14 months in Barcelona um, doing that kind of work. When he arrived in Canada, his first job was as a um, car washer at a mechanic shop in Vernon, actually. Mm -hmm. 
And um, then he was also a, uh, he worked in the orchards. So as a first doing cherries, then apples, when that season came around. Finally, when he made the move over to Vancouver, he got himself a job as a mechanic. And that was what he worked as pretty much his entire time living in Vancouver. And the business that he opened up was his own mechanic shop where he would also buy and sell cars. He would kind of like, you know, buy used cars, fix them up, sell them. And he specialized in BMWs and Mercedes. So um, that he was like a specialized mechanic. Mm-hmm. It's so interesting. I, I have so many questions for you, just <laughs> even about your journey within his journey and his journey and the sharing of that journey. Was that something that he openly talked about when you were growing up about his journey? Yeah. So how I really came close to these stories is that my family loved camping um, every summer, it was like we at least went to Kelowna or Penticton, Osoyas, like our Vancouver Island. You know, we, camping was always um, a must every summer for us. And these were our fireside chats. This was the these were the our bedtime stories that my dad told me and my sisters. So that's what I grew up hearing. And I think that as I got older, certain stories became more relevant to maybe my growth at the time. And there were certain things that he wanted me to hear. So the story started to like reveal themselves more as I grew up. And then when we decided to interview my dad, that's when really the whole thing was opened up and I heard, was able to hear the story from start to finish. Mm -hmm. Okay. So I will fast forward there because I definitely want to ask you about the recording of that. I mean, something that has just intrigued me so much is hearing stories of people as they age, because once they're gone, we don't have these stories and Mm -hmm. the audio format is such a beautiful way to capture these stories. So you've taken on a really beautiful, special project. Can you tell us about that? Yeah. So my dad originally really wanted to write a book. Mm -hmm. Uh, he read the kite runner. Um, and actually it's funny. My dad didn't really like read books until I was in like one of these like camping trips and I handed my dad, um, a million little pieces. Mm -hmm. And at first he was like, this is a pink book. I don't want to read a pink book. And I was like, okay, just like read the book. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I think that was his first look into this like format of autobiography or this like a way of, of, of a person telling their story. And I think that, started to pique his interest. Then he read The Kite Runner, where he then was able to see himself, like a person who had a similar life as him, someone from the Middle East. And it like gave a voice, gave him a voice to talk about his story, you know, especially with the popularity that The Kite Runner came came with. I think my dad didn't really think that people were interested in the story of a Middle Eastern immigrant. Mm -hmm. And seeing the popularity of The Kite Runner really kind of opened his eyes to that a little bit. My younger sister is a writer, so his thought was like, okay, maybe I can write a book. But um, that proved to be a lot more challenging. And I had just started to really get into podcasts at this time. And I was like, okay, maybe I can make help my dad like with a podcast. At the summer prior to us starting to record, I had just graduated from university, went on like a six week, you know, Euro trip with some girlfriends. Mm-hmm. And we were bar- going to Barcelona. And my dad asked me before I left, he's like, hey, look, uh, I lost touch with a friend who lived in Barcelona. He was really a big part of my journey there. He was super helpful to me. Do you think that you can try and find him? And so uh, I was like, yes, I love the sense of adventure <laughs> there. 
And so um, when I got to Barcelona, he, and then he was like, this person lives in a, in a town outside of Barcelona, but it's an hour bus ride. You know, if you have time, maybe check it out. And so um, I asked a couple of my girlfriends, I was like, you know, I'm going to take this day trip to this town called Yoret de Mar. I'm going to help my dad find this person. Worst case scenario, we end up at the beach and don't find this person. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and luckily, my two of the five girls that we were with were like very down for this, um, this little trip. So called my dad right beforehand. I was like, okay, give me whatever information you have. And he's like, okay, his name is Nader Asqui. The last I heard, he owned a uh, electronics store. It was nearby a laundromat. He's, he'll be about 60, in his 60s now, and just sort of like gave a short description of what he looks like. And that was all the information that we had. So we just got on the bus and went to Yorat de Mar. And like, my dad was like, if the bus station is in the same place it was 35 years ago, you get off the bus and it's on the main road, you turn left and you're in the main part of town. And that's where all the stores will be. Surely enough, the bus station was still like in the same place. So I do speak a little bit of Spanish. So just like with my little knowledge of, you know, the words for an electronic store would be, we just started walking around the town, just started like looking for electronic stores, looking for laundromats and places that were even close to one another. I just started like actually just walking into certain electronic stores, asking people about it for his name. And, you know, people would be like, no, 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 no. I don't know this person. And it was like siesta. We got kind of, we got there a bit late. So it was, siesta had started and um, we were like, okay, let's just go have some lunch and find some Wi-Fi and get onto the Google and look up his name. Maybe we can find some listings. One of my friends found like a business directory page and it had an address so we were, and it was like 50 meters away. So we we're like, amazing, let's go. And um, we get to the address. It's, it's an apartment building. We're like looking through all the mailboxes and I'm like trying to find his name. We can't find anything. And I was like, you guys like that, forget it. This is the dead end. You know, let's just go to the beach and like have a margarita or something. Mm -hmm. And um, somebody came out of the apartment and my friends jumped inside and they're like, let's just go knock on the door of the unit number in the address. And I was like, I'm not about to get arrested in a foreign country. (laughs) And they persuaded me. So we went in and we knocked on the door and this woman answered. And I, in my broken Spanish was like, said my name. And then I was looking for a friend of my dad's whose name was Nader. And she was like, yep, one second, let me get him. No way. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) We found Nader and she invited us in. They were preparing for their son's 10th birthday. And she was like, come in, let me make you some tea. Let me go get Nader. He's just waking up from his nap. And Surely enough, walks in this man described exactly as my dad had said. And he came in and he, I was like, hi, I'm like, I'm Amir's daughter. And it took him a second. And he was like, Amir, Amir. And then he's just like, as soon as it clicked, and it really felt like a click moment, his yeah. eyes just opened wide. And he was like, oh, my God, of course, I know who your father is. You know, we sat down and he just opened up for like two hours to us about all these stories that about my dad that I hadn't even heard. And um, he was like, I'll never forget. He was like, I tell your dad's story to everybody. I tell everyone, everyone who came after him, every Iranian or, you know, non-Iranian immigrant who came through Spain and was trying to make it over. I told them about your dad. And he's like, and nobody else tried as hard as your dad did to try and get to America and get to the US and or Canada. He's like, your dad has an incredible story. And even his wife, she was like, oh, I've, I've heard his story too. And that was a really wonderful moment for me because my dad is 
my dad and he is, I'm, I'm like a daddy's girl through and through. And so I always just kind of played it off that like, you know, these stories are incredible to me because it's, they belong to my family and they belong to my dad. But that moment really took me outside of myself. Mm-hmm. And I was like, no, these stories are incredible because they are. Mm-hmm. And because other people think so too. And because this is a really amazing telling of human endurance. And from that moment, I was like, people need to know the story. Mm-hmm. And that's when the motivation really came to figure out a way, like either like, you know, get this book out the door or, you know, with, and then the idea of a podcast came up and my friend who was with me in that moment, um, with me in that adventure, Portia Larley, she's my high school best friend. And she had worked at a radio station in Montreal. And I was like, yo, should we make a podcast about this? Mm-hmm. And she, yeah, she was like, absolutely. Like, cause she's a huge, she's like a super fan of my dad's story and is so close with my family. And he's, she's like one of a few friends that my dad <laughs> tends to like. So, so that Christmas we, I pitched it to my dad. He didn't totally understand what it meant at the time. I think he just thought this was like a little project that his daughter was going to do. And me and Portia sat down with him for two weeks, um, a couple hours at a time. And yeah, he told us the story from start to finish. And now we've been able to bring it to life with the help of Frequency Podcast Network. And we did another record with him uh, for a second time around with the proper preparations, knowing that this was going to be like a real podcast. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And I'm overwhelmed by the response that the sharing of this story has meant to people. And I I feel truly honored that people feel connected to it not just immigrants, you know, Canadian born people, anybody. Um, There are so many messages that we've received of people just really feeling the hope that my dad had and it inspiring hope in them as well. Mm -hmm. I cannot even place myself at the level of excitement and just pure joy that you would have experienced when that woman said to you, oh, yeah, no, he's just right here. Just one second. Like that moment must have been like all the things just connected for you. Yeah, I, me, I'm, me and my two friends will like never forget that moment. We all just looked at each other and our jaws were just on like yeah. on the floor. shattered into pieces. You're on the <laughs> like, other side of the world meeting your like someone so important to your dad. That is incredible. Yeah. Did you have the opportunity when you were there to Skype or FaceTime or Zoom or anything with your dad? We called my dad and I called him and I was like, and he assumed it was an emergency because he knew I was traveling (laughs) and was like, why are you making this long distance call? Um, And I was like, you'll never guess where I am right now. And he's like, where? I was like, I'm in Nutter's house. And he was just like, you're kidding me. He's like, no, you're not. And I was like, yep, here you go. Here's the phone. Talk to Nutter. And it was super lovely. And my dad made a trip to go to Barcelona the following year with my mom. And that was the first time that he had ever returned to Barcelona since he had left 35 years prior. Do they still stay connected now? They're like, on, they're like Facebook friends, yeah. you know, but they're like 60 plus year old dudes trying to communicate over the internet. It's sort of like <laughs> minimal, you know? <laughs> wow. And was there any other contribution from, from your dad's story from other people into what you had recorded? Yes. Yeah, so Portia and I sat down and recorded my dad independently, just the two of us, uh, five years ago. So this is, that's the timeline we're kind of speaking to. This was five years ago. Mm-hmm. And then this past February, I traveled to Vancouver. I'm, I'm in Toronto. 
Um, I traveled to Vancouver with my producer, Claire Broussard from Frequency, and we re recorded with my dad again. Um, we were able to, yeah, interview some people who are part of my dad's journey in Canada. Unfortunately, I wasn't able to have an interview with Nader. Me and Portia to this day kick ourselves for not Inter like recording that whole day, you know, traveling to Europe de Mar. I think because we really didn't think it was mm -hmm. going to happen. We just thought it was just going to be sort of like a fun bus trip to this other town. And um, yeah, we regret it <laughs> to this day. But I have since been able to find a few other people who are linked to my dad's story. And unfortunately, not everyone was willing to talk to us in the podcast. And that's sort of been another interesting learning from this podcast is the topic of Iranian specifically leaving Iran, most especially at that time um, during the Iran-Iraq Iraq war post like revolution when Ayatollah Khomeini came into power, um, everyone is very afraid to talk about it and no one really does. And that's another thing that makes my dad's story really unique is you don't hear these stories a lot from Iranians, especially from people who do choose to go back to Iran um, because Ayatollah Khomeini is still in power and he is still punishing people for free speech. So unfortunately, some of the people that the other Iranian people involved in my dad's story were not um, willing to talk in this yeah, podcast. Of course. Does your dad or can your dad now grasp the caliber of this story and the reach that it has now that it's in an audio format? He can. And I think like Actually, just last week, I got like a little update on how many people had listened to the podcast so far, like how many downloads it had had. And um, they weren't like the full fleshed out analytics, but just, you know, it uh, at four episodes, like how many people downloaded the show. And it was 4,000, which is amazing. I was so mm -hmm. over the moon to hear that. But I messaged my dad and I was like, hey, bub, I got, I call my dad Bubba, bub for short. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I was like, hey, Bob, like I got some numbers on how many people have listened to the podcast. What do you think? And he's like, oh, I don't know. Maybe he's like, maybe 500. And I was like, no, he's like a thousand. And I was and I told him and he was just like, he's like, I'm shocked. He's mm -hmm. like, I'm shocked. And he really uh, I don't think he really expected that. And, you know, his family's listening to it, his siblings and they're messaging him every time a new episode comes out and his friends are messaging him, you know, extended family. And I think that's been really a gift for him. Um, mm -hmm. And he's like so overwhelmed by that gift. And I, yeah, I don't know that he ever even expected that to happen. I think he really just thought that this was a fun project for me um, <laughs> to do. You know, he was like, I just want you to be happy. I just want you to like, you know, be happy with the results of it. And I'm like, no, this is my gift to you, really. Um, so he's been very, very happy with the results of it because um, when I first asked him when we started this, I was like, what do you want out of the podcast? And he was like, if I can just inspire one person, just one person hears this and feels inspired to keep moving on, then that's all I could ever ask for. I was just thinking of the timeline, even having had you flown back to BC to sit with your dad in February, considering everything went upside down in March, you know, to have had that time physically sitting with him. And what a time to have some creative space to work on a podcast. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
Yeah. I mean, my day job didn't slow down, but you know, it was interesting because we also as a team had been, this was all of our first times writing a, either writing a podcast or writing a podcast like this. Mm -hmm. So yeah, lots of time to sit and think with these thoughts and what is the message? What do we want to talk about? But also we were so motivated because we were, we were like, now more than ever do people need hope. And that is what we're offering in the podcast is a sense of hope. Mm-hmm. I want to bring this back to you and your perspectives here. How did your dad's story or how has your dad's story shaped yours? I mean, I think a lot of like first generation kids will talk about this in that how their immigrant parents struggle influences their own struggle in that like not being successful is not an option. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like there is this sense of responsibility and sense of duty to fulfill the life that our parents came to Canada to foster for their children, you know, coming to Canada to create a life for their children that they weren't able to have in the country that they were born in. And my dad reminded me of that all the time. (laughs) Every time I got a C minus on a test, it was like, came all the way to Canada to make sure that you and your sister had a better life than I did. And I want you to be successful. I want you to be happy. And so that there's that. (laughs) Um, And of course, like hearing my dad's story was like, I'm, I'm a deeply empathetic person. And so I've carried his story and I've carried the weight of his story with me my whole life that has translated into an extraordinary sense of determination in anything that I do. Mm-hmm. It has also manifested in an, in an extraordinary weight <laughs> to carry as well for a number of reasons. Um, one, I'm this, yeah, this like sense of responsibility to carry on my dad's like legacy, sort of speak, is something that I take very seriously. And especially now, so with having brought this story to the public eye or ear, I, I just, I can't not fulfill these goals that my dad had for me and his family and his family legacy. So in what ways does that present itself in your life day to day? Or what stresses do you feel that that puts on you, whether they're realistic or not? Um, First up, like when I graduate, when I was graduating high school, it was like what I was going to go study in university. Mm-hmm. So you're the like a first generation immigrant kid is always kind of troubled with this idea of like, what do my parents want? And what do I want? Right? What do I want for myself? And you know, but what do my parents so strongly want for me that they will not support what I want? Mm-hmm. So that was really hard, because I had to at like 17 years old, decide that this choice of universe of going to university, what I was going to study, not only what university I went to, but what I was going to study in university was going to be one that disappointed my parents. And I have cousins who didn't make that decision, who did the thing that their parents wanted to do. And I know a lot of people who did that. Um, and they didn't make that choice for themselves. And I don't know, maybe it was that people didn't know what they truly wanted or really just trusted that their parents knew what was better for them than they did themselves. Um, So yeah, I I disappointed my dad from a really early age by deciding to study something creative because every immigrant, every Iranian parent wants their kid to be an engineer, a doctor or a lawyer. And I had cousins going off to do PhDs and going to med school and they were the examples that my dad wanted for me as well. 
So my choice in education, um, my choice to leave Vancouver and move to Toronto, Iranian girls don't move out of their parents' house until they get married, quite honestly. So even just moving, I don't think my dad would have ever wanted that for me, but just moving cities, moving away from home was like, he took it so personally. Mm. <laughs> and, you know, I, I don't disappoint my parents because I disrespect them. I respect my parents more than anybody else in this world. So that was really heavy for me to carry, mm -hmm. to know that I needed to carve my own path. And this was, I was listening to my, my own needs and my own self while knowing very well that I'm upsetting my parents. You know, that was something that weighed really heavy on me from the age of 17 until I graduated at 22. And even for the first few years of my career, when I was figuring it out, um, you know, cause I was like, from when the moment I graduated university, I was like, okay, I have to reach a height in my career that makes up for the fact that I've disappointed my mm. parents in the education that I got. Right. So it's kind of that constant drive. But my question in that is then what was it within you that pushed you to continue chasing what your dreams were as opposed to your parents' dreams for you? There was a couple of things. The first time it made sense to me to continue to, because when I decided not to go to UBC, which is where my dad wanted me to go to pursue like poli sci and become a lawyer, <laughs> I had applied to four universities, three of which were to be go to poli sci to potentially be a lawyer. And one was a creative field. I just, I decided to apply to Ryerson for fashion because my art, my high school art teacher actually encouraged me to do so. And, um, I thought, you know, okay, that'll be sort of like the wild card in there. If I get in, that's like fate telling me, you know, something. And my dad was like, no, you're not going when I got accepted to Ryerson. And I was like, great. I got accepted to Ryerson. This is like, you know, the universe telling me that's my path. And my dad was like, you're not going, we don't support you. And actually my cousin who went to medical school took it upon herself to take my dad aside and tell her him to let me go hmm. because bah, sorry. It's okay. <sighs> sorry. I also had like therapy today. So I'm just like, <laughs> big day. <laughs> big day. You know, because she said she was like, I didn't really get to choose my own path and I'm paying for it now. And she's like, Shada has the ability to choose her own life path and you need to give that to her. Mm -hmm. And that changed his mind. And then he started to come around to the idea of me being able to like set my own path for myself. And I had also was so shocked by that conversation because like I said, she was somebody that my dad pointed to for my whole upbringing mm -hmm. being like, you need to be more like her. And for her to in turn come to me and be like, I envy you. I've been envious of you. You always did what you wanted. Even though I was like kind of a trouble kid, I was like this rambunctious nine-year-old, but mostly because it was just, I always wanted to do things my way. And I was vocal about it, you know, and she, for her to say that to me, somebody that I thought I was supposed to be like, for her to be like, no, you're exactly who you're supposed to be. And you should continue doing that was really empowering. Mm -hmm. And I'm like forever grateful um, for her having that conversation with my dad. And then I think it was like close to when I graduated. I, like I said, like a lot of like Iranian women, like don't 
leave their parents' houses for a while. But because I had like, you know, I did that and I fought, like gained this like sense of independence. I think my dad like really recognized how important that sense of independence is for me also, because my dad never, you know, my dad raised two girls to be tomboys first, but also to never depend on anybody else but themselves other than my parents. They could, you know, always told us we could depend on them. But I think by, by the end of my university career, my dad finally started to understand why I needed to make this decision to be independent and to move away and make choices for myself. And he started to recognize that and take it more seriously. And so as these like slow hints that would come up, you know, just like the occasional, like, I'm proud of you or good job, or Mm -hmm. that's great, you know, that like filled my bucket and it like, and it just continued to propel me forward and has continued to motivate me today. And every time I hear my dad saying something like, I'm proud of you, I'm just like, okay, (laughs) Mm -hmm. I need more of those, you know, I just need to like, I need to get there and I need to make that happen. And I'm very like stubborn and I'm sort of like very competitive as well. So the idea of success being a sense of like revenge, it's not that I'm taking revenge on my dad, but I've always kind of like really believed that like success as an example is the greatest way that you can prove somebody wrong. And um, that's really just even like today continues to motivate. Anytime I have a conversation with an employer for like a raise or something, it's like, my dad's voice in my head um, that's like playing in the background and motivating me to be confident with that ask and be confident with applying for new jobs or, you know, moving up in my career mm-hmm. or making this podcast happen. <laughs> yeah, totally. I, I love that. It's almost that feeling of watch me. You know, if someone has even the slightest doubt or tries to push you back or down in any way and that that fuel within you that just starts to fester and it's like, watch me. Yeah. And there are so many things, there are so many other things to that. And part of that, again, is like coming back to that piece of my identity as a first generation Iranian Turkish Canadian, my mom's Turkish, is having grown up in like a primarily white neighborhood and being the only person that looked like me from elementary school pretty much until like high school is, you know, there, there were always like things that we... I said, we like, you know, other people like me had to compensate for and try a little bit harder for Mm -hmm. to be accepted, to be integrated and to, to not have this otherness to us. And so the other part of that propeller pushing me forward is that watch me, not just to my dad, to show him that I can be super successful without being a lawyer, but it's also to all of those people in my life as a kid and into high school who made me feel other or made me feel lesser than just because of where I, my parents came from and what I look like. Mm-hmm. You know, like I had a high school teacher in grade 11 who I wasn't doing super well in, in uh, my English class. And uh, her suggestion to me was to be transferred into the ESL class. No. And I'm, you know, and I'm, I'm uh, I was born in, Canada and she knew I was born in Canada and she was like you know maybe because the English spoken in your home is ESL like you you're not in the most like nurturing space for having the perfect English language and I actually blocked that out of my memory um, for quite a while and Portia Larley who's my co-creator and my high school best friend as I said she was the one who reminded me of that and you know just even things like that like you know the other there's that episode of Paradigm, the other frequency podcast network 
show where uh, talking about racism in public schools, mm-hmm. I was like, oh my God, I was, I know that the episode is specifically speaking to the black, um, the experience of black students, but there was so much in that, that I really res that really resonated with me. So that's another huge factor. It's like my dad's sacrifice and my dad's, I should say my parents, my parents' sacrifice to create a good life for me and my sisters. And then the society which othered me, you know, those two things that I'm like, yeah, watch me, mm-hmm. <laughs> look at what I can do. Um, those have shaped my entire being. Mm-hmm. What do you think some of the biggest lessons are from your dad's story that you carry with you on a daily basis? There's a really beautiful part in um, episode five of the podcast where um, my dad is talking about being a migrant worker in um, a orchard in Vernon or outside of Vernon in Oyama. And that moment made me reflect on all of our family vacations these camping trips that I, I talked about, because we spent a lot of time in the, in the Okanagan growing up and every summer we would go cherry picking and, or, you know, some sort of fruit picking. And I said to my dad in one of the interviews, did you ever think about how you at, you know, not too long prior to that were a migrant worker working for like $20 a day in these fields And we had just picked cherries for an hour and spent $80 on a box of cherries. It's kind of surreal. And he said, when I first took you guys to the, to the orchards and we went there for fun, he's like, it was an emotional experience for me. He's like, but I used it to teach you guys a lesson to make sure that you understood and respected the workers in those orchards and to respect people who were potentially not in as good of a position as you are in life. And to look at those people and understand that your father at one point was one of these people and to understand the things that he went through and to, to have some empathy for those people as well. And he instilled a sense of humility in us um, and a sense of empathy to never assume that we are better than anybody else and to always have care and kindness for other people, especially people who were in the service industry or who were, you know, in places that we were, that were workers in places we were going to in whatever aspect and to always treat people with respect, no matter who they were, where they came from. Yeah. I had written down humility and empathy and such fabulously strong and deep perspectives from a young age. Yeah. I wanted to also come back to otherness and just feeling othered and how your own experiences in that feeling have informed how you lead your life. So because I have so much empathy, because I have so much humility and have also felt othered, I like absolutely do my best to never make anyone else feel that way. Mm -hmm. And I make a point of trying to influence that in the work that I do in my, you know, in my day job, I've tried to, and and I've tried to communicate this through the podcast as well. But I, in the industry I'm in is advertising. It can be very toxic. It can be very exclusive and it can be very whitewashed. And I've luckily found a company that has heard my voice, has helped amplify my voice and has allowed me to be a steward for diversity and inclusion in the industry. Um, Being a producer, I have some flexibility to have control of the projects that I work on and the people that I work with. And I find it incredibly challenging to ignore 
any sort of incident of a person being othered. What not even about like race and and culture, but ableness or mm-hmm. size or age. I find it like almost if I see somebody being othered, I almost like choke on, I am like almost choking, trying to (laughs) figure out how to navigate that situation. So those are some places that I've really tried to be an ally and not just an ally, but an accomplice as well. I think that's like a new term that I've learned in, in COVID is moving from performative allyship to not only to also an accomplice and being on the front lines with other people, with people to amplify their voices and make them heard and make them feel included. I, yeah, I have a really hard time excluding people. (laughs) Mm -hmm. You've kind of alluded to it, but I was going to ask or frame a question around intergenerational traumas that you feel like you have actively taken a part in working through. May I ask you about how intergenerational traumas have shown up in your life or have presented themselves in your life? So the primary way that this intergenerational trauma has like manifested itself in me is anxiety and stress. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, it also can manifest in as depression. Um, I profoundly believe that everybody is depressed at some point in their life and it can ebb and flow. There are absolutely people who deal with it on an everyday basis and every hour, every minute basis. But I also really do also think that there are ebbs and flow. There can be ebbs and flows within people for depression as well. Mm-hmm. But anxiety and stress are pretty high up for me. I think I've like also brought on stress on myself with the type of job that I've decided to take on. But um, I absorb all the information around me at such a micro level that I take on the stresses that are unnecessary to my own personal life. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I mean, as I've said, I've, I think I sort of mentioned this very briefly, but I'm empathetic to a fault and that is because I'm extremely observant. I've got a really high attention to detail and that manifests itself in like, I'm in the grocery store. I see an, somebody struggling with, with their basket and I'm like standing there thinking, should I talk to them? And should I offer my help? Should I wait and see if they, if they can figure it out on their own, do they do they even look like somebody who wants to be approached? Would they be insulted if I approached them and offered them help? Would I be embarrassed? Like all of that information walks through my head in about like a 30 second time span. Mm-hmm. And that's with me like every step of the way, like in every situation I'm in. And it stresses me out. <laughs> it creates like a lot of anxiety and it's and it manifests physically. I get like physically uh, disrupted by stress all the time. And in the last couple of years, I've only just in the last couple of years have really taken a pause to understand how I absorb information, why I absorb it to such a macro level and how it translates into my body and to learn the ways and the tools for how to deflect that and to minimize that. And I think that's how I see the intergenerational trauma manifesting in me. And I think it's because my dad's lesson from so many years ago in that orchard telling me to take a look at other people's lives, to understand that they have struggles within their own day to day and that, you know, approach every day with humility or approach every new person with humility, but also empathize with them. Mm-hmm. And then just understanding that my dad on the surface is this person who he's an Iranian immigrant. He's a business owner and 
almost nobody outside of his family knew all these other things about him and these other struggles that he had been through, I think was such an influence on me always thinking about other people and the whole capacity of their lives Mm -hmm. (laughs) and everything that they're going through. And um, yeah, I've almost like had to work on in, in therapy, work on like caring less, which sounds crazy. Um, well, I shouldn't say crazy. It's, it's, it sounds, um, almost like the opposite of what some people deal with, you know, like maybe try and care more, but I feel like I care so much about everything. Um, the idea of, so there's this one, one, like I concept that I've really struggled with. And I read the, this book, I don't know if you've heard of it, like four agreements. Mm-hmm. I think oh, yeah. everyone's, yeah, everyone's heard of it. The idea of like not taking things personally <laughs> is like such a struggle for me. I don't like get it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm like still, that's like a, a, it's hard. It's so hard because I think like, as you're gathering in this interview, I, I approach things with my full heart and with so much emotion, I'm like such an emotional person. And so is my dad. My dad is a very, I'm like very much um, a product of my father. And, um, when we interviewed with my dad, there was an emotional labor carried not only for me, but also my dad was carrying such emotional labor because he was lifting off this information that he had not really sat and talked about Mm -hmm. to somebody other than my mom, you know, when they first met. And he said it then, he says it today. Every time a new episode comes up, he listens to the episode because he hasn't been a part of the editing process or anything. After I interviewed him, my dad heard nothing else. So he says, every time I hear about, hear these stories or I talk about these stories, he's like, my memories go right back and puts me in the exact place where I was 35 years ago. Mm-hmm. So he's reliving those moments. He's reliving those feelings. So he's re-experiencing trauma. I'm like, I, by interviewing my dad, I, I basically had to ask him to relive his trauma that he worked very hard to move away from by him telling me about these traumas because I have that level of empathy. I took on the weight of the trauma that my dad was experiencing or like Mm re-experiencing. So we could only do interviews for maybe an hour and a half at a time because I would be like physically drained by the end of it. Mm -hmm. I would just be like, I I can't even process this information anymore because it's so, there's some parts of the story that get really, really heavy. And it's like, we we need to like, like you did earlier, like we need a timeout. This is like a lot. So what personal practices do you have to establish boundaries in your personal life, but also within these big, heavy conversations that you are having? With my dad, there are no boundaries, Mm -hmm. (laughs) I guess. Like in the, when we recorded, you know, the podcast, there were no boundaries because we didn't want to have that we wanted of course this was like a very raw open conversation the idea of expressing boundaries is still something I work on today and it's a relatively new concept to me for putting in practice and I'm talking about like the last like year (laughs) and um, what I do is I have found an amazing therapist and we worked on getting me reconnected with my gut And because I felt like I really stopped listening to her a long time ago Mm -hmm. and I started to listen to her again and I started to, you know, making sure I can empower myself to tell people what my boundaries were and to just read my body and understand when I had a limit. I think because I care about people so much and I care, I have so much empathy. I listen to people a lot. I 
I care about the people around me. I think a lot of people also like come to me mm-hmm. <laughs> with issues and or like whatever they come to me for advice. For example, in the aftermath of George Floyd's death and, you know, with the uprising of the BLM movement in my day job, I work, we, you know, there was so many conversations happening. We have like a weekly zoom call and people were like upset, outraged. And also like, what are we doing? What are we going to do? What are, what's this topic of conversation? And everyone kind of came to me and was like, because I am, I've naturally become a very vocal person and I have a really hard time not expressing myself and to the truest form. I have my mom to thank for that part. So a lot of people were coming to me and they were like, are we going to have a, you need to, you need to make like a meeting. We need to do something. And I took on that labor and, you know, I spent a couple of weeks talking to all the people in my work, reading different articles and absorbing information. And, you know, I didn't have the, all the information either. I think, you know, a part of the set kind of part of what made me a little bit angry at the time was that it was, you know, my white colleagues coming to me as a person of color and expecting me to have some answers. And I was like, I'm also really digesting this information yeah. right now. I don't have a black experience and I don't have an experience with police violence, but I do have an experience as a person of color and I and as like somebody who has been othered. And I will take on this responsibility because it's also important to me. And yes, we should be doing something and yes, we should be talking about it. And so I spent a couple of weeks researching and forming a, like a, we ended up having like a, a meeting and uh, we had some d- topics of discussion. And after the meeting was over, I just, I, I cried for like an hour. My body just exhaled and it released. Like, like I said, that physical stress just mm-hmm. was like throwing up in like tears out of my eyes. And, yeah. <laughs> and I was like, and then everyone was like, great, what are we doing afterwards? And I this was probably one of the first examples that I could really see myself like listening to my therapist. And I just wrote a response and I was like, I'm, I need a break. I can't like, Mm -hmm. I'm thank you everybody for joining that meeting, but I'm going to be like tabling this conversation for like a week. I can don't message me. Don't talk to me about it. I can't take on this anymore. Like, or like just for now, like I, that was a lot to get there. So that's like an example of like the boundaries that I try and set for myself. And I, I know that like everybody says this, everybody and their mom and the memes on the internet. And it's, but it's like, once you turn 30, like you really kind of start to like shave off the extra bullshit and like, you know, nonsense stuff. I don't need to hang out with people who don't bring me joy. I don't need to do things that don't bring me joy. I don't need to, you know, like I don't need to do anything that doesn't like me, you know, make me happy. And, and I no longer will. <laughs> so mm-hmm. And it's okay to say no. And it's okay to say no. But damn it, it's hard sometimes. Oh my God. Yeah. And, you know, especially when you have, it sounds like you have like a really great group of friends in it, but I'm sure like, you know, when you're friends with people for like 10 years or more, like everyone's growing in their own way. Oh, yeah. And especially if you're maybe like have a, like a long distance friendship, people are growing, you know, in different directions as well. And the hard part can become, can we come back together again? Like, are we going to continue to run parallel to one another and in a way that's meaningful? And what can be really hard sometimes is like, am I going to let go of this? And are we going to move on? Mm -hmm. What are some personal practices that you have to maintain wellness within your own space? Do you work out? Do you focus on eating well? Do you read? I am notoriously bad at um, like consistency. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Consistency is something that I bring up a lot in like goals, like when I'm setting goals, 
I like have a routine, but I don't have a consistent routine. So it's like, I think it also comes with my like aversion to rules and like constraints of people telling me a certain way that I should do things. Mm -hmm. But I absolutely try and go outside. I have a lovely, emotionally supportive dog. And um, he does bring me like so much joy, so much angst and anxiety at the same time. But, you know, if I, I, I know that if I'm like really not feeling good, that if I just take my dog for a walk and I, I live a kilometer away from the lake and we'll just go to the lake and I'm like, oh my God, I feel infinitely better. And take my dog for a walk. Food is so important to me. <laughs> I like love food. And I think it's the way I was brought up also. Like family was always around the table for dinner, eating food, sharing a meal together. And so food is really important to me, eating well. And one thing that I kind of also learned in COVID was that it, food can be a, an, a coping mechanism and in, done in a proper way can be a healthy coping mechanism as well. So it's like, I really find comfort in food and eating well and cooking for myself. I know that I'm like in a good headspace if I'm making meals for myself, mm-hmm. you know, obviously socializing with friends when you're eating out, that's like gone are the days of that. But because that also used to bring me like such a level of joy food is really important. Um, if I can't go to sleep, I try and meditate. Mm-hmm. Having therapy every week or every other week um, is really wonderful to me. Um, you know, I make sure to like take a beat. Like I said, I like, mm-hmm. because the stress really manifests like physically in my body, mm-hmm. I really try and listen to it and try and un- just feel where my gut is pointing towards. Mm-hmm. If it's reading, then yeah, I can kind of sense that because I'm like, whereas like maybe my, my go-to mode, maybe like, okay, just open up the TV and like start watching something. Sometimes that's really great for me. I love movies and I I love Mm -hmm. watching, sounds stupid, like say I love watching TV, but like, I really love stories, Mm -hmm. you know, because I am a storyteller. So sometimes that helps me like transform fully into another world. But if I'm not gravitating towards that, I know that my body's itching for something else. So I also paint So I'll paint, um, I'll sketch, I'll, you know, or I'll just like sit and listen to music. I've started to take baths, Mm -hmm. which has been so nice. (laughs) These are like a lot of amazing things. I do a lot of things and I still like, I have these like really high stress levels, but it's because I don't do them every day. And I don't do, like I said, the consistency piece is still missing. So I don't like, I think it's like these things like take precedent when I'm like kind of desperate. (laughs) But I also think that, like you said, even learning boundaries are actively talking about how important setting boundaries are, even within the last year, it sounds like you're well on your way to having established some really great practices that with consistency are going to completely transform the stress levels that you experience. Yeah, I hope so. I mean, I've been, I started seeing my therapist, like actually just as COVID happened, Mm -hmm. um, like at the end of March, actually. So the timing was like perfect and luckily found somebody who, I connect with really, really well. And she understands me really, really well. And, and we've done a lot of work and I'm really grateful for her and for the work that we've done together. Mm. I definitely owe her a lot of the credit and I have a really supportive group of friends and family. I don't talk about therapy with my family the most because yeah, like as an immigrant parents, they tend to think that like therapy comes as a product of like something being wrong with you or, and they just assume that I'm talking about them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I'm actually like most of the time, like not talking about my parents, to be honest. So and Bubba, if you're hearing this, you didn't do anything wrong. Um, <laughs> but again, like all of this, like sort of builds into this like weight that I feel when I move around the world is like, 
I feel like my brain moves so much so quickly, constantly, um, because I'm like, okay, think about other people, but also think about yourself and care a lot, but don't care too much. And, you know, be a good person, but also don't let be a pushover. And, you know, like, it's like Mm -hmm. all these things that you have to constantly think about. And sometimes I'm like, wouldn't it just be easier if I could just be one of those people who doesn't care at all? Like, I don't, yeah, (laughs) I don't want that for myself, but I just like sometimes think that it would be nice. I don't know, to like, just be hypnotized for a day or something into this like super selfish Careless. Yeah. Zero empathy. Thank you. Yeah. (laughs) I have three safe haven style questions for you. You ready? Yes. What are you most proud of? I'm most proud of my heart. Mm -hmm. I am really proud of like how much I care and how I treat people and my outlook on life and the world. And I have my parents to thank for that. I'm like so proud of the life that my parents have created for me. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, I'm like super grateful for who I am. I like, I'm really proud of who I am. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's a beautiful answer as you should be. What would you like to be known for? I would love to be known for somebody who was a steward for giving voices to people who are otherwise unheard. Oh, that makes me smile. (laughs) And if you had a message for everyone listening, what would it be? Be kind to your neighbors. (laughs) Mm. Be kind. Mm -hmm. Shada, thank you so much. (laughs) You're very welcome. I need to make sure too that people can find you on social media and I'm going to link your podcast at the bottom of this too. So for anyone listening, if you're like, oh, I need to hear this podcast, the answer is yes, you do. And I will yeah. have links so that you can click on them. Um, but where can people find you on social media and follow along? Well, the hopeful podcast is on Instagram at the hopeful podcast and they can find us there. Amazing. <laughs> thank you so, so much. Oh, thank you so much for having me. This was like, an unexpected experience, but a really, really fulfilling experience. Thank you so much for listening to me and having like really beautiful questions. Oh, you're welcome. And thank you. Shada, thank you so, so much for speaking with me. I feel so incredibly grateful for your time and for your stories and perspectives. Thank you so much for sharing your version of your dad's story with me and my listeners. As a side note, I was actually driving on Highway 97 between Vernon and Kelowna while I was binge listening The Hopeful. Holy cats, did that make it feel a little bit extra special. To everyone listening, I recognize the privilege that comes with my platform and I am committed to creating a safe, brave, and inclusive space with intention. If this episode has hit you right in the heart or inspired you in any way, please screenshot the screen while you're listening, send it to your friends, and share it in your Instagram stories please be sure to tag us so that we can personally thank you for it. If you're able to write a review or leave a juicy five-star rating on Apple Podcasts, that helps this podcast grow. If today is the start of your journey into the depths of anti-racism, learning and unlearning of old ways, be kind to yourself. Try not to feel burdened by shame or guilt. Keep moving, keep growing, keep leading with love, and I will talk to you next week.